Hello folks and warmest welcomes to yet another instalment of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, the premier North Wales based true crime show brought to you by me and my cat. Now I do have to add him into the credits because the little bugger has a habit of getting up and you hear his little bell sometimes during the episodes, don't you? That seeks out to recount as dark and as unfamiliar or forgotten tales as I can find from all corners of the UK and Ireland. I'm Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. You guys are of course you guys. The wonderful enthusiasts whose support has now gotten the show into year four and keeps the show coming. It's as fabulous as it always is having you joining me here today, where I hope that each of you as you're listening in are all good and you're all well. So we start as ever with my expressed thanks to firstly every single one of you guys for the support that's gotten us into the fourth year of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, as it's just recently been the show's birthday. Now I was sat just thinking about it the other night and it's like, where's three years gone? It's totally surreal. It's been a proper ride throughout that time and a real privilege to do. It's totally worth every second that I spend doing it and I still love doing the show as much today as I did when I first started doing it back in 2017. It's made me some great friends and brought me some great opportunities along with it. But first and foremost, it doesn't exist without you guys. It would just be me talking to peaks in the spare room then and I do enough of that already. So cheers folks, each and every single one of you rule. Ruling also are both the returning and new Patreon supporters of the show, with shoutouts this time around going out to new supporters Lisa, Naomi Russell, Cara Emery, Kate Collier, Nikki Bennett, Julie Smythe, Mandy Nicholson, Sheena Mays, Jeff and Lee Hamill, Jan Hughes, Emma Poppleton, Brendan Fennell, Leslie Slaney, Rebecca Worthington, Coco Dobbs, who's edited her pledge, and Denise Nelson, who's become the show's first annual patron. Thank you so much all, it's so very kind of you and I hope that you've had chance to catch up with the bonus episodes of the show that you get for being a supporter, alongside those of you who I hope by now have had some enthusiast stuff through the post, it has all gone out to those who uh, it's supposed to. As I just mentioned before, I've now added the option of becoming an annual subscriber to the show at a discount with details all there on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast Patreon page. If like these guys you think that there's something missing from your life and that plug could be myself recounting tales such as A Lonely Death on Gun Hill, Obsession by the Sea or Enough Rope then for a very reasonable cost you could be hearing these tales and others because there are 20 full length unreleased bonus episodes available and bonus episode 33 Ripper in the Making was released just a few days ago. Just head on over to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast on Patreon, always remember the podcast suffix on it, or use the ever-present link in the episode show notes, and quicker than the track and trace system fucks up, you can get yourself access to them, or all the show goodies that can be sent out to you. I'd also like to remind you all that tickets are now available for CrimeCon 2021 in London next July, that alongside some of your other favourite shows, I shall be appearing at for the weekend. I'm thrilled to be a part of such an amazing lineup because it really is an ace one and I so look forward to saying hi to you guys and catching up there with you at the event. A link to the CrimeCon website is in the episode show notes and if you're heading there and wanting to come along by using the unique code ENTHUSIAST you can get yourself 10% off the price of your early bird tickets at checkout and there'll be some enthusiast stuff waiting for you there at the event. It'll be great seeing some of you guys there. 
So this time around then on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, we're continuing with the tale that I began two episodes back, an arc called A Family's Fight. And what I did stress last time, I remember saying specifically it would be a trilogy, it's now ended up as a quadrilogy. Now there are a couple of reasons for this. First and foremost, the tale is such a remarkable one that I couldn't rest easy if I'd skimped on it for a second, and having written it up as a trilogy, it was running longer than bloody Bill Withers saying day, and so it's best to break it down at a natural point in the tale, which I have done. There's also an incredible amount of information to express throughout the entire story, and I want to do that properly, because Lynn and the Siddons family deserve nothing less. If, of course, you haven't yet listened to either parts one or two of a family's fight, Lynn's story or the haunting of Michael Brooks, then head back and listen to those first because you'll be totally lost here otherwise. If you are up to speed, then you'll remember we've already heard of the horrific murder of Derby teenager Lynn Siddons back in April 1978. The subsequent arrest, trial and acquittal of 15-year-old Roy Brooks for the murder in the same year and the twists and turns in the Siddons family's campaign to bring the man they, and practically everyone, were convinced was actually Lynn's killer to justice, by quite literally haunting him. We've heard of the police investigation into Lynn's murder, their attitude and incompetence both before trial and following the acquittal, and we've heard just the lengths that the Siddons family were prepared to go to, off their own bat, to see their quest for justice through. So let's carry on with that right now and see what they did next. The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing, so please use your discretion when you listen in all. With that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast as we continue with part three of the story arc, A Family's Fight, The Road to Justice. So by the early 1980s, the Siddons family had become almost accustomed to door after door shutting in their face in their attempts to bring Lynn's killer to account for his actions. Some three years had passed since her murder. Roy Brooks had been arrested, charged, tried and acquitted in the same year. And Derbyshire Constabulary were taking about as much interest in the case following this as I have that Ian Huntley is warm enough in prison and were about as useful as a key without a door. But Derbyshire police weren't the Siddons family's only port of call, thanks to the staunch campaigning efforts of Lynn's mother Gail, her aunt Cynthia, and the matriarch and figurehead of this tale, her grandmother Flo, for the family had by that time built up quite a network of supporters for their cause, amongst these several influential people. The first and foremost powerful friend was MP at the time for Derby North, Philip Whitehead. In the near three years that had passed since Lynn's murder, he'd become the family's staunchest ally in their quest for justice for the murdered girl. He'd raised the matter in Parliament several times, and written to the powers that be in both the legal and policing circles, all the time banging Flo and her family's gong. As a consequence, he knew of and shared the Siddons family's disgust and desperation that nothing active was happening in the case, and each time he spoke to anyone from Derbyshire Constabulary, he was left infuriated with their inability to take the bollocks out of their handbag and actually crack on and do something with the evidence that had been presented to them, apart from lose it, of course. Or the subsequent statements from people claiming Michael Brooks had confessed to the murder in their presence, 
instead of being of the view that because none of these people had witnessed the actual killing at the time, their evidence was hearsay and of no value in securing a conviction. So frustrated with it, Philip Whitehead decided to make his own inquiries. As I said, he knew all that had gone on in the case up to that point, including Dot Brooks's very damning statement that she'd retracted because his researcher Helen Goodman had been in Dot's presence when she'd made it. Now as you may recall, in the first episode of A Family's Fight, Lynn's story, I mentioned that on the night Roy Brooks had been arrested, Dot Brooks, in somewhat of a distressed state, had contacted and gotten everyone around, including Michael Brooks's brother, Bob. So Philip Whitehead decided to try and trace Bob, but having no contact details for him, he put the feelers out with the rest of the Brooks family for Bob to get in touch with him. Philip knew members of the family for many years before, when he tried to help them following Michael Brooks's father being made redundant from the local Rolls-Royce firm facing bankruptcy, and he knew them to mostly be respectable people, the one exception being Michael Brooks, the black sheep of the family. Now it took several weeks for him to reach out, but one Friday evening in 1981, Bob Brooks got in touch with Philip Whitehead, and although he was reluctant to get involved and to make an official statement, claiming that the police had spoken to him three years previously and didn't seem too bothered then with what he had to say, Bob eventually arranged to meet Philip Whitehead a few days later at a billiard hall some 30 miles away in the Derbyshire town of Long Eaton. They met on the pre-arranged date, and although details of their conversation have always remained confidential at Bob's request, he did tell Whitehead that on the night they'd been summoned around to 27 Carlisle Street, his girlfriend at the time, Ina, was with him. So Philip Whitehead went around to see Ina, and although she asked for a name and address not to be divulged, which has indeed never appeared in print, Ina did subsequently give a statement to a solicitor acting on behalf of the Siddons family. It reads as follows. In 1978, Bob Brooks was living with me at Burton-on-Trent, he was unemployed. Sometime in April he received a phone call, after which he said, They've arrested our Michael, let's get over there. He said the arrest was for murder. We picked up Mr and Mrs Paddy from their home in St Thomas Road in Sinfin, and went on to the Brooks house. Dot let us in, and her mother was already there in the lounge. Dot ranted on. She talked so much that she hardly stopped for breath in the half hour we were there in all, I would say. Shortly after we arrived, she pointed out marks on the wallpaper over the chimney breast, and I saw the cut marks. They were more slits, really. The wallpaper was patterned and very dirty, so it wasn't possible to see how many slits there were. Dot told us that there had been posters there, and that the police had taken them away recently. The pictures were of girls, and she told us that the slits were caused by the knives Michael used to throw at them. She said Michael slept with a knife under his pillow, and that she had to have sex with a knife at her neck. I remember her clearly saying, Nobody knows what I go through. Then she said, The bloody swine, I'll never forgive him for involving our Roy. She made it clear to me that she believed that Michael had murdered Lynn Siddons, so I asked, Wasn't there any blood? She said, Yes, on mixed trousers, but we've burnt those. She was crying and hysterical, we then left and went back to Mr and Mrs Paddy's home before we finally went home. Now, the account that Bob Brooks told Philip Whitehead was remarkably similar to this one, 
And so Philip Whitehead decided to once again head to police and tell them the new information that he'd learned. He gave them the statement that Ina had made, urged police to speak once again to both Bob and Ina, and even passed them her address to do so. But Derbyshire police were about as impressed with this as I am with the BBC for cancelling Crime Watch. You know you love it when we slate them here for it on the show, don't you? Their attitude was one of, well, Bob or Ina weren't at the murder, were they? So what do they know? And you think to yourself, what does it take, you know? So it was back to raising the matter in Parliament, generally in all circles of power that he could, and although Philip Whitehead could easily have used his parliamentary privilege to name Michael Brooks and accuse him of the murder without any fear of recrimination, he never once did. He was to explain the reason for this later in a statement that I found remarkable, and not being the biggest fan of politicians myself, should Philip Whitehead have still been alive today because he passed away in 2005? he would have definitely gotten my vote for. The reason for this, he explained, is as follows. The real problem was to try to be fair to this wretched creature. If I'd named him, there would have been a lot of headlines, but he would never have had a trial. The defence would say the jury had been prejudiced against their client, and he would have been acquitted instead of being put away for this terrible crime. He sounded the useful one, Philip, didn't he? Better than that prick who got on the train with Covid. Jesus wept. Meanwhile, while Philip is fighting the cause as much as possible and Derbyshire police are doing bugger all, Flo and the Siddons family were still campaigning as much as ever, never letting up for a second. And in the times back home were not writing endless letters to the powers that be or keeping a vigil outside Brooks's house. Sometimes in the quiet moments, Flo would just find herself solace in the presence of Lynn that she had left, for she'd kept everything of hers. Now I know I've read of some occasions where a loved one, and it's usually a child, is taken from people and they keep everything exactly as it was at home the last moment they saw them, and I can understand exactly why they do this, for it must be an awful and incredibly difficult thing to do, put away reminders of a life forever but I can equally understand how hard it must be also to have that constant reminder. It must be bittersweet. I hope you know what I mean there. Flo, as you can imagine from how we've come to hear of her, had been no different. She'd kept everything of Lynn's, and even when she came to move house in 1985 to number 15 Keldholm Lane in the nearby village of Alverston, it all came with her, and it was all laid out lovingly in the back bedroom of Flo's new home. Everything of Lynn's, from a record collection to a school books and uniform, was kept for Flo to often flick through and look at, desperately missing and wanting some form of connection with her beloved granddaughter. She even over the years visited several mediums and psychics to this angle, both for comfort and the hope of a connection with Lynn for herself, but also as another example of the lengths that Flo would go to, because perhaps something that may help entrap Lynn's killer may come through from the spirit world. There wasn't a thing Flo wouldn't do. And as we said, she and the rest of the family were still pursuing their earthly plane campaign with every spare moment. Aged almost 70, Flo even took on a temporary cleaning role in the evenings to help pay for the costs of travel, the mounting telephone bills that came from the calls made as her fight continued, 
and the postage costs for the countless letters that she wrote to everybody she could think of who could possibly help week after week. And more and more Flo and the family were getting support from the ordinary people in the street, which Flo found the most comforting. She described later, Strangers would come up to me while I was shopping and ask, Are you Mrs Siddons? We've seen your picture in the newspaper. Then they'd wish me well and say, More power to your elbow, or some other encouraging greeting. And the telephone used to ring at all hours of the day and night. Again, it was well-wishers offering help or advice. Everybody seemed to be on my side. Now an example of just how much people were taken by the remarkable family, albeit an odd one, came in the early 1980s when Flo still lived at number one Carlisle Street. One night she was burgled, which is a horrible feeling. If it's ever happened to you, then I'm sure you'll know just how horrible it is. And alongside the television and an amount of cash and jewellery that was taken, so also was the ring that Lynn had been wearing at the time of her death. When Flo appealed for its return through the local press, explaining the reasons that it was so precious, the ring was shortly afterwards sent anonymously to Derby Police, along with a note expressly asking for it to be returned to Flo. And surprisingly, they didn't manage to lose it either. Makes a bloody change, doesn't it? It was also in the early 1980s, early in 1981 in fact, that Flo and the rest of the Siddons family made themselves another powerful friend and supporter of the campaign, Paul Foote, a British investigative journalist and author, not the comedian of the same name with the weird long hair and the grey leather jacket. Foote was an old university friend of Philip Whitehead's, knowing each other from when they'd studied at Oxford University together. And Philip had reached out to Foote, who was a columnist for the Daily Mirror tabloid newspaper at the time, telling him of the story and the Siddons family's quest for justice. Always an outspoken and forthright columnist, Foote's interest in investigative journalism had been piqued the previous year when he began looking into the case of the Bridgewater Four. Again, you never know what cases may crop up here on The Enthusiast at a later date, is all I can say. So hearing the shamble of bollocks that Derbyshire police had made of the case, who truly sounded at the time like they couldn't run a bloody bath, let alone a decent investigation, plus the Siddons family's subsequent quest for justice for Lynn, Foote was so intrigued that he invited both Flo and Gale down to the Daily Mirror offices in London to hear their story for himself. They accepted, and after hearing their tale, Foote believed that the evidence suggesting they were right was so strong that it was a story that needed to be out there, a perfect lead for his weekly column. The story was verified, and Foote sat down and wrote it, passing it on for legal scrutiny and verification, as most of his columns had to be before they appeared in print, only to have it blocked before going to press by the Mirror's legal department, them concerned they may be leaving themselves wide open to losing a fortune after being sued for libel by the Brookses. So forthright was the original article. However, about a week later, the head of the Mirror's legal department, a barrister named Hugh Corrie, met with Foote, willing to re-discuss the story. After a massive tete-a-tete, it was agreed that should Foote carefully set out everything in much greater detail, triple-check it, and categorically, carefully, did not make an absolute allegation that the murder had been committed by Michael Brooks and Roy, 
then the story may be able to go to print. Boom, let's go disco. Now the article, as had been advised by the legal department, was set out in three detailed sections over two pages of the newspaper. The first section dealt with the details of the case, the events of the murder of Lynn, and the arrest and subsequent trial and acquittal of Roy Brooks in November 1978, including Roy's two massively differing statements. The second section focused on Dot's statement that she'd approached the Siddonses and made, going on about their bizarre sex life, Michael Brooks's love of and behaviour with knives, and his actions on the day of and his subsequent confession to Lynn's murder. Foote had even contacted Dot Brooks himself whilst preparing the article. He spoke to her on the telephone and asked her outright, in the no-pissing-about way that I like so much, just why she'd retracted her statement and recorded her answer, adding it to the article. Dot had said, I don't want to go into this now. I was not jealous of my husband, as some people think. All I will say is you have to fight fire with fire, and that's what I did. Now this vague, cryptic answer that she wouldn't enlarge upon, if you're from the UK and old enough to remember, then it's like a bloody 3-2-1 question that, isn't it? Was in no way a denial of the original statement that she'd made, and its claims within. Indeed, the recorded interview was played to the legal department and impressed them, helping massively to grease the wheels for the story to go to press. The third and final section of the article dealt with the statements made by Keith Hibbert and Clive Shirtcliffe, who'd come forward following the Siddons family's appeal for fresh information that they'd released to the press, which again, as you recall from part two of the tale, contained an account of Michael Brooks admitting his involvement in the murder along with Roy. It was all very well written along the guidelines that Hugh Corrie had specified, was legally cleared for publication, and after putting it together as a double-page spread with the Mirror Features editor Richard Stott, a proof of it was prepared on the Tuesday before Foote's column was due to be published. Which the then chairman of Mirror Group newspapers, Tony Miles, lost his shit about when he read it ahead of publishing. He summoned Foote, Stott and Hugh Corrie to his office and tore strips off them, claiming that there was no way the article could go into the newspaper, for if it had, it would be dropping your underthrashers, bending over and basically inviting those mentioned to give them a libel rimming. But the three fought their corner and eventually, after some time and argument, were able to persuade him that the story should go into the next day's edition. It appeared in the Daily Mirror newspaper on Wednesday the 8th of April 1981, where it was widely regarded as a remarkable piece, and indeed a piece that Foote was lauded for when he collected his Campaigning Journalist of the Year award at London Savoy Hotel only a few days later. The article was not challenged in any way by the Brooks family or their solicitors, and thanks to the British newspaper archive, it's reproduced within the episode show notes for you to have a read of. Foote said of his initial article years later, It was an unusual story in many ways. You had the incompetence of the police, the battle for justice by this very determined family. But most of all, you had a murder where everybody knew the suspects, but they were still free. Most of my campaigning stories in the past had been to free people who'd been wrongly convicted. But this was just as important. These people had committed a murder and appeared to be getting away with it. Nobody had been convicted because the police messed it up. 
I still to this day can't comprehend how it was that the Derbyshire police behaved so incredibly badly. The least they could do is say they made a mistake and charged the guy. If a jury finds him not guilty at the end of the day, that's bad luck. But they could then say that they'd done their job. Well, exactly, eh? As we've said a few times, what more do they want? Now this was only the start of Paul Foote's involvement in the Lynn Siddons story. Following this article, he wrote more than 10 more features about the case over the years in his investigative campaign in an outspoken style, and began a lasting friendship with Flo Siddons that lasted until his death in 2004, with her always referring to him politely as Mr Foote, in the many times that she'd contact him at both work and home to inform him of any developments in the case cementing his place as an important and approachable figure in the network of journalists, MPs and other sympathetic and powerful public figures that Flo had created on a quest for justice. Once Paul Foote had broken the ground and got Lynn's story properly out there, others now began contacting Flo also, requesting interviews and wanting to do features on the family's fight. It was featured over the years roughly on average every two months in the local Derbyshire newspapers, making sure every twist or development in the case was told, and each time someone called or visited the Siddons family inquiring about the campaign, into a contact book went their name and details, until it was so full it was like Ken Barlow's Wednesday dinner hour shags week one. But on top of being the shining light as far as the press were concerned with raising awareness of Lynn's murder and how the Siddons family were trying their best but ultimately being blocked at making progress. And believe me, they all have this tone, but some of Foote's articles are extremely scathing about the way the investigation was handled by Derbyshire Constabulary in total support of the Siddons family. Paul Foote was also instrumental in bringing about the family's next major step in their quest by introducing them to an investigative lawyer that he knew who practised in London, a woman named Jane Dayton. Like him, Jane was sympathetic where she could see an injustice and she loved a fight, and Foot believed that she was the exact person who could kick the case up the arse and jolt it forward, and so Jane and the Siddons family were introduced. Now, we'll talk more about Jane shortly, when she comes into the tale a bit later on. By the time 1984 had come around and the case was still prominent enough to be featured in a weekly magazine called Unsolved, a copy of which has been a valuable source of research for the episodes, Flo had had enough. Not the campaign, as I said in the previous episode, this family didn't know what the meaning of giving up was, but rather that it was time to do something else, channel their energies into another outlet also. She sat pondering the now six years since Lynn had been murdered, and rather, she pondered the apparent inactivity of Derbyshire police during that time. Almost everyone in the Derby area knew who'd killed Lynn, they'd seen the name on posters and placards, as well as in newspapers and magazines. The entire courtroom back in November 1978 had been convinced of it, and even though by that time they'd been driven out of Derby due to the Siddons family's persistence to haunt them, they were still walking around free. What were police even thinking? The Siddons family had been less than impressed, shall we say, with the Derbyshire force ever since the early days of the investigation, before Lynn had even been found, by them treating her as a runaway and with no sense of urgency in searching for her. 
Then, appallingly, they'd not even sent a representative to attend a funeral. And how commonplace is that to see? There's always someone from the investigating force in attendance at a murder victim's funeral, isn't there? Surely that's basic courtesy and decency. There was the whole debacle with the arrest of Roy and their refusal to arrest Brooks, even though they must have been the highest grounds of suspicion to. Then, of course, they'd been handed a knife and sodden, charred clothing that had been discovered in the Brooks's garden, which the police had lost, both of, and even though the family had traced witnesses themselves and obtained statements giving crucial evidence, police were less than enthusiastic about doing something with them, and indeed found fault with a lot. He's unreliable because he's a crook, or he wasn't even there. Some of them, such as Bob Brooks, they hadn't even bothered taking statements from in the initial inquiry. Now, for a long time, the family put this down to negligence, and certainly this isn't Derbyshire Police's finest hour, is it? In fact, it's absolutely disgraceful, isn't it? If it was simple negligence. It did cross the Siddons family's mind, as it has mine, and from comments that I've seen already, some of yours too, that this may have a more sinister reason. Had these items been deliberately lost, or witnesses deliberately found fault with or ruled out, to save the police purely from embarrassment? I mean, if they had a second trial, then it's them admitting that they'd made a mistake and charged the wrong person in the first place, isn't it? I don't want to think that it's purely to save face for them, but it does make you wonder. So Flo, and I wouldn't like a bollocking offer, I tell you, now approached a sympathetic county councillor named Harry Lowe, who was a member of the police committee in Matlock, and he assisted her in drafting an official complaint against Derbyshire Constabulary under Section 49 of the 1964 Police Act for their mishandling of the Lynn Siddons murder inquiry. Dated 25th of October 1984, the police officer named in the complaint was the officer who'd been in charge of the investigation, Detective Superintendent Jim Reddington, as rules of complaint designated that they had to be addressed against somebody specifically, not against the collective. Acting Chief Constable of the Derbyshire Force, Alan Smith, immediately followed protocol for when a complaint is made against a police officer by drafting in representatives from another external force to investigate the complaint and in this case, it was Merseyside Police who were tasked with doing so. Early in 1985, two officers from the Merseyside Force, Assistant Chief Constable Ernest Miller and Detective Chief Inspector Bill Cody, arrived in Derby to do just this. They spent six months thoroughly reviewing and poring over the entire amount of files from the 1978 investigation, all the witness statements and actions, and at the end of that time, produced a comprehensive and thorough report of their findings, separated into three sections. Section 1 was a 60-page write-up of their overall findings and recommendations, whilst the second 50-page section consisted of the statements they themselves had taken from witnesses concerned, including new witnesses such as Carol Dunworth, the teenage lover of Michael Brooks who'd never been spoken to before by police. The third section, again about the same length, was comprised of other relevant documents and references that were included to back up the Merseyside officers' findings. Now the Miller Report, as it's come to be known, was never made public, its content kept a secret, despite repeated efforts by the Siddons family, Derbyshire councillors, 
the police committee and even Philip Whitehead for it to be released. They were even willing to accept it being released under the strictest close confidentiality, even if Flo herself could just read it, because I'm sure that she would have memorised every line. But even though it's never been released, it's strongly believed to smack of two things overall. Although the report did exonerate Detective Superintendent Reddington of any personal wrongdoing, and indeed Flo only put his name to it because she had to put it to someone, it was believed to have been severely, severely critical in its findings of the way Derbyshire Police as a whole had conducted the investigation, and it strongly recommended a reinvestigation into Lynn's murder by an outside force based upon fresh evidence. The witness statements from Carol Dunworth, who told the Merseyside officers that Brooks had admitted attacking Lynn to her, Keith Hibbert and Clive Shercliffe, etc., Yet although this report was passed onto the Department of Public Prosecutions, joining the mounting list of evidence that the officers had been approached with previously in view of bringing new charges in Lynn's case, it was again decided that this fresh evidence wasn't sufficiently strong enough to charge Michael Brooks and bring him to trial. The recommendation for another force to reinvestigate the murder wasn't acted upon either. Indeed, Following the report being delivered to Derbyshire Police, in a press release that both Merseyside Police and, surprisingly, the DPP refused to be associated with, the Deputy Chief Constable of Derbyshire Constabulary, Ron Hadfield, was at pains to stress that, I quote, everything humanely possible is being done to resolve this inquiry, and was also quoted as saying, no useful purpose will be served by a reinvestigation. Yeah. Are you having that or unreal that, isn't it, eh? Unreal. So this shamble of bollocks dragged on to the end of 1985, after the fourth refusal by the DPP to hold a fresh trial over the murder of Lynn Siddons, this time with Michael Brooks in the dock, and the Siddons family were in danger of losing heart. This seven-year campaign, all the visits down to Fleet Street, seeing and obtaining the services of this solicitor and that one, the time spent campaigning and shouting out to anyone and everyone who would listen was both time and financially consuming. And although all of the Siddons family were helping out with the financial costs of it, and Flo, by then in her 70s, had even taken a part-time cleaning job to go towards the fight, it was costing more than they could collectively afford, by that time already having run well into the thousands. But they never once considered giving up, feeling that the money would always come from somewhere. But that somewhere certainly wasn't the Criminal Injuries Board. Not a chance. Any recompense from these is sometimes so wide of the mark it's unbelievable, and awards are not always distributed as just. If you think back to the Maniac arc earlier this series, in the episode The Aftermath I brought you details of the amount of compensation finally received by Colin Stagg, who, yeah, fair dues, did have his life ruined and lost a year of his liberty. But set against the amount received by Alex Hanscom, who witnessed his mother hacked to death. And you'll see exactly what I mean. Now, I must stress that money was never the driving force behind the Siddons campaign. It was solely and continually justice for Lynn. But they'd paid accumulated legal fees in 1984 that had mounted to thousands of pounds and now found themselves unable to get involved with more solicitors, so as was their right to, 
they applied to the Criminal Injuries Board for compensation for Lynn's death. The plan being that any monies received from this would be solely ploughed back into the fight to have Michael Brooks brought to court. After some time, in late 1985, the CIB responded and sent them a cheque. They received £27 compensation. Adjusted for inflation, £27 in 1985 is worth £82.35 pence today. Yeah. Now I know how I felt when I researched this case and I saw that, so I can hazard a guess how you guys must feel also, and I'm sure you can imagine how Flo felt. She said later, I was disgusted, I almost decided to send it back. That was the price they put on a young girl's life. As I said, it was never about financial gain for the family, but that is disgusting, isn't it? An insult. It boggles the mind sometimes how these things are decided. It really does. Yet in a roundabout way, such a paltry sum did ultimately help the family, because now Paul Foote stepped in again. It was following this and knowing of the family's despair and apprehension to obtain further legal services that they knew they couldn't afford, that he introduced them to Jane Dayton, knowing she was a kindred spirit to his sense of justice, and this was exactly the type of cause she would take up. Singing Jane's praises, he told the family that if she couldn't work for them for free, then she would attempt to get them legal aid. And indeed, from the start, Jane shared Foote's opinion of the case. She found it not only an intriguing one, but was appalled that a young girl had been so horrifically murdered, and a killer or killers, despite their identities being known, was still at large. She was even more appalled at Derbyshire Police and their total lack of subsequent activity, and she set her sharp legal brain to working out a way that she could best help the family. The problem there was, as Jane saw it, was that if the police and DPP wouldn't prosecute, the only other option that was open to the Siddons family was to raise a private prosecution, which was not only fantastically expensive, but would be open to the DPP to take over and do what they saw fit with it, which would have been to take it over and stop it. Plus there was the complication of Roy Brooks. Having been acquitted of the crime once, could he be tried again, even if it was brought privately? and the legal problem that if Michael Brooks were charged, would Roy's evidence as an eyewitness then be acceptable, as Roy had played a part in the murder, albeit one under duress? Jessica Fletcher's head would explode trying to get around that one, wouldn't it? I nearly had a nosebleed even bloody typing the thing out. But after considering the issue for a considerable time, by the end of 1986, Jane Dayton believed that she'd found a way around the problem. What about, instead of initiating the Siddons family going to the massive expense of bringing a private prosecution for murder, why not instead take a civil action against Michael and Roy Brooks for battery and seek damages from them for causing Lynn's death? How's that for an idea? Now by doing so would be a legal first. It would be the first time in British law that a pair of killers had been brought before the courts by their accusers in such a way and it wasn't going to be plain sailing. But you don't shy away from stuff like this. This is how law is made, isn't it, with unique situations such as this one. And so, once it was run past them, and with a nod of approval from the Siddons family, Jane got to work on this. 
and we'll hear all about it in the concluding part of a family's fight next time around, as that's a perfect spot to leave the tale for now, and there are some unreal moments to come yet in the story. If you've resisted googling the case, and I must admit, I would have done totally, then you'll find parts of the conclusion hard to believe. It'll put you through a whole range of emotion, I promise you. If you have looked it up, then I'm sure you'll know what I mean. I hope anyway that it's a tale you find in both interesting and informative. As I say, it's far too complex a story to be covered in one hit, this is. I don't think that would be possible to really do it the justice it deserves, that Lynn and the Siddons family deserve. When I started researching and writing it up, I didn't foresee it running to the length that it has, but I hope you know where I'm coming from when I say this. It's one of the most powerful and heart-wrenching tales that I've ever looked up, and one that's been a privilege to work on. I do get engrossed fully in the research for every tale that I cover on the show, and I like to dig around for ages and find this little snippet and that little trinket, but I found myself extra wanting to do that as much as I can with Lynn's story. Hence you guys getting it as a quadrilogy that we shall conclude next week, where we'll round up absolutely everything, and I'll give my own thoughts and feedback on the collective tale as a whole. I'll get off and put the finishing touches to the final part of a family's fight right now, and I hope that you can join me, same bat time, same bat channel, for it. I thank you very much for joining me here today, and all that remains for me to say is that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you guys good and safe times, and I shall speak to you real soon. Take care all, and goodbye for now.